welcome to the second season of On Translation with Muhammad Al-Bakri and Joseph Michael Haney. Joseph is not here with me today. This is our first episode of 2019 and I will be interviewing Dr. Len Palermo. Dr. Palermo is Associate Professor of French at Susquehanna University in Pennsylvania, USA. She teaches French language, translation, and French and Francophone cultural studies. Her research interests focus on the first half of the 20th century and encompass literature, the decorative art, architecture, cultural politics, as well as translation. Uh, currently, she is working on the translation of Humus by the French Caribbean writer Fabien Canor. Her work on this project uh, is being supported by a 2019 translation grant from NEA, the National Endowment of the Arts. Lynn, congratulations on the award. Thank you. I was very happy. I'm very thrilled to receive it. I have quite a few questions for you. All of them, or most of them, are broadly related to the theme of voices and translation. But first, a more general question. How did you get into translation? And how do you see translation studies fitting in with your academic training in French studies? Well, I think it's the culmination of everything I've ever done. Uh, I, I started out as an undergraduate as a linguistics major at Penn State, and I chose it because I loved language and I loved seeing how language worked. And at the time, I was I just took a French course every term because I'd taken it in high school because I'd traveled early in my life and met people from all walks of life who, who spoke multiple languages, and I wanted to do that. So I took French, uh, suffered through years of French courses, <laughs> and <laughs> until I, I studied abroad and things clicked, and then I tacked a French major on that was an emphasis in uh, language and culture. So I was doing linguistics in linguistics, but also linguistics in my French. I had French phonology, French syntax, French morphology. Then uh, for my graduate school, I went to the University of Delaware. I went, in, I went into a PhD program in linguistics, thinking applied linguistics, because French in the 90s, French was struggling. So I thought I'd do English as a second language, teaching English as a second language, and at the same time just taking a French course for fun to keep up my French. And I ended up loving my French courses and liking my linguistics courses, so I switched over to French and did French literature. And for the PhD, I didn't want to drop literature, but I wanted to understand it in its context. That's why I chose the civilization option at Penn State. My dissertation focused on literature, but World's Fairs, two World's Fairs, 1925, the Decorative Arts, and 1931, the Colonial Exhibition. So it was interdisciplinary studies, uh, really cultural politics. And then uh, here at Susquehanna, I don't know, I was, I was in France and was looking for uh, short story authors who would be approachable for undergrads to use in my classroom and uh, discovered uh, Cyril Fleischmann, a French writer from a Yiddish background, and his stories were short, and his style is kind of simple or deceptively simple, I've discovered, in trying to translate him. I just latched onto translation, but in investigating the translation, I had to go back to everything I'd ever learned about literature and the cultural context, and I'm digging here, and I love the detective work 
in doing translation, it involves uh, my literary studies, it involves my linguistic studies, it involves the civilization studies, it involves everything I love about archival work. It, it just brings it all together. It does indeed. Uh, translation is a fascinating interdisciplinary field. Uh, before we get into your views on translation and the challenges you encounter, could you give us a little bit of a background about the novel for which you were awarded the NEA Humus by Fabien Canor? Sure. Humus uh, or Humus by Fabien Canor. Fabien Canor is a French writer and a documentary filmmaker of Martinican descent. Uh, Humus is her second novel of six, uh, with a seventh on the way. Uh, this particular novel was inspired by an an incident recounted briefly in an 18th century French slave slave ship captain's report. Uh, Fourteen captive women escaped from the hold just as the ship was leaving the coast of Africa, and the 14 women all leaped overboard together rather than be sold into slavery. So in the novel, Fabienne wanted to reinvest these women with uh, names and identities and stories. So each chapter is a first-person account by one of the women. The novel opens with the passage from the, the slave ship captain's uh, report that, that recounts this incident. And after that, there's a, a narrator who warns the reader that this is not going to be like your adventure on the high seas story. Then we have each woman's story in the first person, and that each of those chapters is followed by three verses of what looks like a sea chanty, which is actually tells the story of one of the sailors on the ship. So the French sailor. And then at the end, the last voice is uh, the contemporary woman called the inheritor or the heiress, who is the author of the book, talking about how this uh, reading this incident haunted her and trying she's trying to figure out how to tell this story. Fascinating. Sounds really wonderful. The name Humus, uh, what's the significance of this name? So Humus is the fertile topsoil. And one of the themes that traverses Kenora's work is the hold of these in, um, enclosed spaces, like uh, the cells in which the captives were held before they were loaded onto the ships, and then the hold of the ship, and then slavery itself, metaphorically, so these places of enclosure and restriction can also be places of creativity, rethinking and re reconceiving also places of creation. That's what I think the significance of the title is. Great. Well, thanks for the contextualization. would like to shift gears now and ask some questions about translation. And as I mentioned at the beginning, many of the questions will be related to the notion of voices in translation, listening yeah. to voices, translating voices hearing the voices of the translator. So how have you approached translating all the voices in the novel Humus? Uh, that's been a huge question because there's no overriding narrative in this book. It's it's a collection of stories, and Kanor sees it as a, a polyphonic uh, novel but whose, whose multiple voices speak like a chorus. So it's been a challenge <laughs> trying to find the voice of each of these women and yet have language that, or a tone or something that sort of provides continuity across the novel so that they don't just sound like disparate voices, so that they all come together. And I'm sort of in the final uh, stages of 
of the manuscript. I'll be submitting it at the end of this month. At this point, I'm I'm thinking about it as I work on each individual voice. I'm sort of thinking about the other voices and crossing my fingers that that this will all gel and all come together because they're. I mean the the voices or the stories of the women connect. They come from different parts of Africa. They come from different cultural groups. Right. Um, but they intersect through their capture at that moment and then through their act of resistance, the leaping overboard. Uh, well, to be more specific, what are some of the strategies you employed to capture a diversity of voices in the novel in terms of informality, formality, linguistic register, and so on? Yeah, there are some that are seem very ceremonial, sort of uh, recounting an epic tale. There's one who is uh, whose name is the Amazon, and she. Um, it seems like high oral literature, if you want to put it that way, the Odyssey kind of. And uh, there are others. So it's a question of uh, style of the author. Some uh, some voices are much more staccato than others. Some have uh, telegraphic style where they, she drops a lot of subject pronouns, for example. It speaks in a lot of sentence fragments. In some cases, it's, it's also attitude of the character. Is the character bold or fearful or defensive or resentful? And uh, throughout, I, I, I spent about two hours talking with the author in December or in November, and she said that she was trying to capture, she was trying to account for a presence and absence of language throughout. So a presence of voice and restriction of voice, presence and absence of language throughout. So that's sort of the element that I'm trying to use to bring them all together. Great. Uh, it seems that you have a good collaborative relationship with the author, which can be very helpful. Are you planning by any chance on giving a final copy of your translation to the author, or you don't think that's necessary? I will. I'll give it to her and to other other readers, too. She's not a native English speaker, obviously, So, but there are also creolisms in the text. Mm-hmm. So, so she, for example, she can help me to make sure I didn't miss any of those or misinterpret those. I have a cultural informant from Martinique who is also doing that, and then I have some English readers to read it from the English side. <laughs> this is the first novel I've translated, so I'm feeling my way along and trying to cover all my bases. It is not, however, the first work of trans- translation that you have done. You have published many literary translations in uh, different journals, uh, Kenyan Review Online, uh, World Literature Today, and you have also done collaborative translation. So I'd yes. like to ask you, how do you, how do you think about the voice of, of the translator in this novel and other translations you have worked on before? The voice of the translator has been a big question for me, and I'm still trying to define it. And in fact, in Alta Conference, I organized a session. On the, the American course. Literary Association Conference, yes. Right. We, we had a great discussion. A lot of people showed up for it, so I think it must be a big question for a lot of people. Uh, I keep having trouble uh, defining it, and yet I can feel it when it happens. And I was trying to think of is since I do individual translation and collaborative translation, does my voice change whether I'm working alone or with someone else? What I want to do is find a voice within the voice of the author. And to some extent, you have to set yourself aside. 
I never want my own ego to interfere with the, with the work of the author. Right. So you brought, you brought this up already about your work with in collaboration with others. Do you see differences between your voice as an individual translator versus your voice when you collaborate with someone else? Not terribly differently. In in both cases, I will say there's there's kind of this process I see myself going through where I think I understand the text. <laughs> as a reader, I understand the text. And then I start digging into it as a translator. And I just think, oh, my God, I've gone down a black hole. I don't know if I will ever come out again. Suddenly, I the deeper I dig, the less I understand. Then at some point, you sort of hit bottom and start working your way up, and, and things start to gel, and you think, oh, okay, I, I know what I'm doing. And at that point, I feel like I've found my voice, whether it's by myself or in collaboration with someone else. And then my intuition kicks in. I start having, I start having a sense of what I think is the best solution. As I go along, I start to have a, a real opinion about, oh, yes, this this is where I want to go. This is what I want to do with this. And I think that's that must be my voice, finding my voice within the translator. With my collaborator, we have gone through the same the same uh, process. And the way my collaborator and I work together is we each do a quick translation on our own of a chapter or whatever. And then we come together and we talk through the entire thing which in the beginning was very difficult because we were always afraid that we were going to step on the other person's toes. And we have learned to set ourselves aside. It's not about us. It's about the text. And I really love that. I love being able that we can set ourselves aside and just focus on the text. We are trying to do what's best for the text, and we are not going to keep track of how many times we chose my my version or her version, or usually what we end up is our two versions and discussing them bring up other possible versions, um, other possible solutions. And that's what we go with. So does it matter in your opinion whether an author's work is translated by a single translator or multiple translators? Well, that's another question I go back and forth on. I think ideally, given that translation is an interpretation of a writer's work. Right. I think it's probably best for an author to have multiple translators. I started thinking about this question when Patrick Modiano uh, received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2014, and it was kind of an embarrassing thing for the English-speaking world because I, I don't know if any of his books had been translated into English at that point. And so there was a flurry of translations of Patrick Modiano's work in a very short period of time, which meant multiple translators who had all done the work at about the same time period within, I think, about, about two years. And so I read, I, I just grabbed about uh, half a dozen different books out of the library and didn't read the whole thing, but read about 50 pages of each one. And that's the only time I've ever sat down and compared sort of uh, an author's work over multiple translators. And um, the thing that worried me was that, I mean, some translations I loved and others I wondered, it made me want to read the original because I wondered if this translation was doing him a service or not. A, a translation will make or break the success of a book in another language, right? So that's the risk that you run. But I think... Ideally, an author should have 
more than one translator so that we're not always having the same perspective on interpretation of that author's work. That's a great point. Well, I have still some questions uh, related to voice, but I would like to connect that with your teaching experience as well. So how do you how do you talk about voice when teaching different classes, especially French translation, to your undergraduate students? Teaching translation to undergrads is I've sort of been feeling my way along with that, too, because I started doing that about 10 years ago. I didn't know of any models out there for that. So I wasn't even thinking myself about voice in that at that time. So I have taken a project based approach to translation courses and used the thinking about translation to support the project. So I started out by having students choose a children's book. It gave me an excuse to go to the children's section every time I went to France and picked out uh, children's books that I thought would be good for translations, ones where it did not rhyme, where it had a good story, etc. And the students translated a children's book. That way they could do an entire work and not an excerpt. And now I do uh, historical documents. We, we've done letters and short texts uh, coming from World War One. Uh, so soldiers' letters from the trenches or articles and essays that women wrote because they had a public forum, you know, they had a public voice during the war when the men were away. So my approach to teaching translation is to teach it in the historical and cultural context. This semester we're going to translate letters written by a, a French-Jewish high school girl who wrote letters to her English teacher, her, her French literature teacher over the summer of 1942 uh, until she and her family were deported. So when I talk about the voice, it's in the context of the voice of the document. And the documents are very clearly attached to a person. I think that really helps the first time out. Last summer, I worked with two students and we translated the World War One cahier, um, what do you call it, notebook of of a French soldier, mm-hmm. and which he wrote 30 years after the war. But he must have been so traumatized that his descriptions of what happened on the battlefield were so vivid and so, you know, such concrete, vivid detail that he'd clearly been traumatized by it. He, but he'd only had a an elementary school education, formal education. So the French was riddled with uh, spelling errors, grammar errors, uh, sentence fragments, lack of punctuation or random punctuation, accent marks that were here, there, everywhere missing. First thing we had to do was write a standard French version of his writings and then translate that standard version into English. So we talked a lot about his his perspective, his we knew something about him, uh, where he was from. He'd grown up on a farm. So a lot of that entered our choices, his his background, his level of education. So by translating that piece of non-standard writing into standard language, don't right. you lose the authenticity of the voice in this case? Well, that was one of the challenges. We didn't want to make him sound. Yeah, we wanted to maintain that. We didn't want to make him sound like a professor. You know, (laughs) it was just a tug of war the whole time. People will judge whether or not we were successful. But uh, all I can say is that it was a, a constant concern of ours of how how to maintain this. We did not feel like we should 
have spelling errors in English, like that would be completely artificial. And so how do you, how do you maintain it? Well, we, we maintained a lot of the fragments. I'll say that the sentence fragments. I see. But we just thought it would be too contrived to have incorrect punctuation or incorrect spelling. Apart from talking about voice in your teaching classes on translation, I see one class listed on your CV entitled Problems in French Translation. So mm-hmm. what kind of problems do you bring up in the classroom? And do you also talk about opportunities in French translation? <laughs> well, uh, by problems, I, I came up with that title a long time ago, <laughs> too. I might change that. Questions that we wrestle with in, in translation, we talk about the differences between in, characteristics between French and English. So French is a much more noun-based language And English is a much more verb-based language. So if, when you do your first translation from French to English, it very often sounds flat in English because you're, there's so many haves and bees and, you know, verbs that are not... Don't have much of a semantic content. Right. And then, you know, English is much more compact and more concrete. So those are some of the syntactic and semantic kinds of things that we do, we talk about. I've found that teaching translation and having them work on these texts is the best way to <laughs> to get advanced students to think about the structure of language. You know, just wrestling with the relative pronouns and, you know, the complex sentences and trying to figure out how to decipher them leads us to questions that if I presented as such <laughs> in a class, they'd yawn, you know, but here... <laughs> They're, they're trying to solve a, a puzzle. So when I talk about strategies, like I say, you're not sure where do you start to decipher a sentence? You look for the verb. Don't look for the subject. It's often not where you think it's going to be. Look for the verb. And after that, that you will be able to puzzle things together from there. So they just pick up a lot of understanding of how the language works. Great. As an active practicing translator who have done work from literary translation and academic translation. Do you sometimes use samples of your own translation? I haven't to this point, just because time. Because <laughs> uh, the things that I emphasize are working on a real text so that they will have completed the translation of a real text. And I try to find ones that have never been translated into English before. So they are really contributing to our body of knowledge in English and in the, you know, in the public domain. And next, next fall, we'll be working on the Exposition Coloniale of 1931, which I um, have done a lot of research on. And we will be translating text from that as, as a way to learn translation. But also in all of these, we're making connections with the history. We understand, we do historical research. We do cultural research. They're learning how to use databases. They're learning where to find answers, what are legitimate answers, the whole thing. We're just walking through a project. I also have them work in pairs on things so that they're working, they're learning, they're learning something about collaborative translation because the collaborative translation means that they are articulating their decisions, their, their choices, their problems, the puzzles, the decisions that they make. So the project is the focus and the rest is supporting it and it's, it's very process oriented, but they come out with a translation that has never been done before. 
Thank you, Lynn, for your insights on the translation process and your work, and wish you best of luck, and I look forward to reading your novel in translation. Thanks. Thank you very much. See ya. This has been an episode of On Translation. Thank you for listening. Next time, we'll be talking about translating humor. Take care. Follow On Translation on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play, or also visit ontranslation.org. I don't want to dream about sharing.